Well, one of the most popular games on TV for a generation has been Family Feud. Any Family Feud fans out there? Yeah. Well, in the game, survey questions are asked and families compete to see who can come up with the best answers and win the highest scores and hence the cash and prizes. So today, we're in a play little Family Feud. Name what women want most for Valentine's Day. Vacuum. <laughs> Number three, survey says jewelry. Yeah, 18% say jewelry. Interesting. Okay. Number two. Hmm. Oh, well, let's see. Survey says a personalized romantic gift. 23%. Now, just in case you have any misconceptions, Sorry, guys, chocolate and lingerie are at the bottom of this list. Number one, survey says, not flowers, a romantic weekend away. I'm trusting with your spouse or a special person. <laughs> and, and apparently a few folks got a clue and, and they are doing just that this weekend. Well... The reality is that family feuding isn't just a game, it's a reality. And the issues are significant. Many aspects of life can create feuding in the family. The loss of a job, debt or financial struggles, trying to juggle busy schedules and activities. And it's not just the difficult stuff in life, even good stuff can cause stress and conflict or strife, the birth of a baby, holidays or other special family celebrations. And it is a critical issue. Recent research by the Children's Society involving around 7,000 10 to 15 year olds discovered that family conflict is the biggest factor in causing unhappiness among children. Think of that, family conflict. Whatever the constellation of the family, from traditional to blended, the survey found that family conflict had the biggest impact on a child's happiness and the biggest factor, family arguments and how they were managed. Now, feuding and conflict isn't just a reality sometimes in our friendships and in our families, but also in the church. Some time ago, Leadership Journal, a major Christian publication, uh, did a survey of church conflict with hundreds and hundreds of pastors across the country. Here was the bad news. 95% of those pastors and churches, sur churches surveyed, 95% reported that they had experienced significant conflict over the past five years. Now, there was, well, on that note, you know, someone once said, where two or more Christians are gathered together, there will be at least four or five opinions. You know, the good news, 94% of those who reported said that there were, in fact, some positive results by working through the conflicts. Conflict is simply a part of life from our families to the family of God. And while conflict can be beneficial, it has the potential to be damaging. Often the real damage results not from the issues themselves, but how the conflict is handled. Like any adversity, conflict can make us better or bitter, stronger or weaker, 
more united or more painfully divided. Today, once again, we see that conflict in the church dates back to the very first generation. It is nothing new. But through God's word and the witness of the early church, we learn that instead of feuding, it's possible to foster unity and common purpose. Instead of butting heads, it's possible to come together heart to heart and find common ground in the grace and the love of Christ. And so, if you have a Bible uh, or one is within reach, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 15. There we encounter perhaps the most pivotal conflict in the early church. And how it resolved, or how it was resolved, charted the course for the church's future and offers insight for us today. So, I'm going to begin by simply reading the chapter with some highlights, and then we'll take a look at how it was managed and how it might guide and inform us today. Beginning with verse 1. Certain individuals came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So here we are. As issues and conflict go, the stakes couldn't have been higher. The question, what is required to receive God's grace and salvation? Some Jewish Christians insisted that faith in Christ wasn't enough. One also, in effect, had to become a practicing Jew, to be circumcised, to practice the traditions and the ritual laws of the Old Testament. Well, for Paul and Barnabas, this struck at the heart of the gospel and their call to reach people of other nations, of all nations. So they traveled to Jerusalem to have it heart to heart with the church, with the apostles, with the elders, and to face the issue together. We move on in verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done to them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, the Jewish party, stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and must be required to keep the law of Moses. Well, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made it a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe in God. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why did you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke namely the yoke of the customs and traditions of Moses that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Well, once Peter had said this, Paul and Barnabas shared even more about the way God's Spirit was working among the Gentiles, calling them to faith and new life in Christ. And so James, the brother of Jesus, and now the leader of the church 
in Jerusalem draws the discussion to a close and to action. Verse 13, when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. And he quotes from the prophet Amos. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent, its ruins. I will rebuild and I will restore it so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord. So James goes on. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. There it is. Grace is greater than the ritual law and customs of Moses, right? But James also knows that some traditions would be too hard for the Jewish Christians to give up. So he asked the Gentile church to avoid certain things that will pose an insurmountable wall between them and their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. Religious taboos since the time of Moses. So James goes on. We should write to the Gentiles, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality. This relates to temple prostitution practiced by the pagans, the Romans and the Greeks, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogue on every Sabbath. James then sends representatives of the church in Jerusalem back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas with a letter in which we find these words. Verse 28. It seemed good to us, to the Holy Spirit and to us, not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So they were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. Well, for the apostles and the elders, for the church gathered that day, the witness of God and the Spirit's leading were clear. Grace is free, and so are we, Jew and Gentiles alike. The gospel of grace takes precedent over the laws and customs and traditions of Moses. Salvation is a gift through faith in Christ So, what can we learn from this? What can we learn when conflict arises in our lives, and especially in our church? First and foremost, we learn it's important to face the issue together, to face it together. Notice how Paul and Barnabas literally do it Jesus' way. They seek reconciliation. It begins in Antioch. You know, Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your gift. For Jesus, restoring relationships, seeking reconciliation was the first priority whenever there was brokenness. Paul and Barnabas practiced the way of Jesus. They tried to address the issues with their Jewish Christian friends in Antioch. They debated, they discussed, they sought reconciliation. It simply didn't work. 
And that literally means they were practicing uh, the process that Jesus laid out for addressing issues of conflict in Matthew chapter 18. What did Jesus say? If a brother or sister sins, right, if you have a conflict, go and point out the fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. So here we are. They took step one. It didn't work out. They took step two. It didn't work out. And so now, with the support of their church, they go to Jerusalem to practice, right, in the spirit of Jesus, step three. How does step three, how does the process of Jesus work? Well, these steps, in fact, are true whatever we do. First, it's so important to listen to one another, to hear all sides, to give everyone a chance to voice their heart, to voice their mind, to voice their hurts, their needs, their convictions. And that's just what they do. All sides were given an opportunity to speak and to share heart to heart with one another. Next, they, along the way, looked to God, right? They had the witness of God's, God's written word, the testimony of God's promises and the prophets, right? They listened to one another's experience of God and, and the work of the Spirit in their lives. And they were sensitive to the Spirit's leading as the conversation unfolded as the stories and the witness was shared, as scriptures were lifted up. And finally, they let God's Spirit and the grace of God be their guide. Grace becomes the heart of it all. It's more important, ultimately, than the religious customs and traditions to which we become attached. You know, we see this so vividly portrayed in Jesus' life, in John chapter 8, when a group of religious authorities uh, uh, brought a woman who was caught in adultery and threw her at Jesus' feet with stones in their hands. The law of Moses declared that because she had been caught in adultery, she should be stoned to death. That was the letter of the law. And you may recall what happened in the story. Jesus simply knelt down and started drawing in the dust And eventually he responded. He said, let the one among you who is without sin cast the first stone. Well, one by one, all they could do was drop their stones and walk away. The woman stayed planted in the dust in front of Jesus. And he said, woman, why are you still here? Where are those who condemn you? And she said, they have gone. And then do you remember his words? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The grace of God takes precedent over the letter of the law. The spirit of God's love takes precedent right, over the letter of God's law. Now, Jesus didn't sacrifice God's law. What did he say? I don't condemn you. 
go and sin no more. He didn't condone her actions, but nor did he condemn her. He extended to her the full mercy and grace of God, and he extended to her a chance, an opportunity for new life. You know, I grew up in the 1960s. That's, that would be the 20th century. That's just how old I am. <laughs> and it was almost a rule that you didn't go to church without a crew cut and a tie. Some of you can remember those days. Uh, it, it reminds me of a story of a, of a young guy back in the 60s who, who uh, got his driver's license, but his dad was a pastor, and they were kind of button heads over some of these issues. And he said, Dad, please let me use the family car. Please let me drive now that I got my license. His dad said, well, I'll tell you what, son. First, if you pull up your grades a bit, come worship with us on Sunday, and get a haircut, I'll gladly and freely you know, let you use the family car. Well, a couple months passed, and sure enough, the son showed up and he said, Dad, look, I bought my grades up, and I've been going to church regularly with you guys. Can I drive the car now? And he said, well, son, you still haven't gotten a haircut. And, the, and, 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 the, and, he, and he said, Dad, come on. Even you know Jesus had long hair. And the dad looked at him with a smile and said, yeah. And Jesus walked everywhere he went. <laughs> well, there were big issues and sources of great conflict in the church in the 1960s. Vietnam War conscientious objection, the role of women, right, in leadership and service as pastors of the church. I can remember among some of my friends, um, one of the issues was uh, the issue of baptism. Uh, I was a Lutheran kid, and I had, you know, Assembly of God and, and Pentecostal friends. <laughs> and they would like, they liked to tell me that because I hadn't been immersed when I was baptized, that it didn't count. My name hadn't hit the book of life yet. I said, because of the what? I, I just tried to get my head around that. And I asked my pastor about this in confirmation class. And he gave one of the most extraordinary responses. He had been a chaplain during World War II. All right? He said, listen, picture two soldiers in a foxhole on a rainy night the day before a big battle. One of them with a tiny little flashlight is reading a New Testament he got before he left, right, home. And the other is watching him. He's scared to death. And he finally says to the other soldier, you know, I went to church as a kid, but I never really professed my faith. I never went forward to be baptized. And I, I would really like to be baptized. My pastor said, so what do you think the other soldier should do? He said, picture this. He takes off his helmet. He fills it with water from a mud puddle next to the foxhole. He says, come here. Kneel down. Do you claim Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? Do you now desire to be baptized in his name? And he takes muddy water from that helmet and pours it over his friend's head. He says, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you are baptized. You are a child of God. My pastor looked at us and he said, what do you think? Did that baptism count? Wow. Grace is greater, right, than traditions and customs. 
He said, did it matter that the other soldier wasn't a pastor that day? <laughs> we knew with all our hearts, no. Grace is greater. Face and address the issues together. Go heart to heart, understanding each and every step of the way that the grace of God is the highest priority. And secondly, it's not enough just to face the issue together. There is another vital consideration. And the question is, how do we preserve our unity when unanimity is not possible? When we simply can't come to agreement based on our personal convictions, based on scripture or our life background and experiences. Well, um, my, you know, the church today faces big issues that, that can be a source of really painful conflict. You know, in our culture today, the issue of abortion still is so troubling and divisive. And most recently in our culture, the issue uh, uh, of homosexual uh, civil unions or marriage. These are difficult social and moral issues that literally are dividing many in our country and can be a source of division and disunity in the church. The question is, how shall we, how shall we live and love one another in the midst of those difficult circumstances? Well, my daughter Brooke went to a church up in Tacoma uh, that, that got it all solved. They just got it all solved. Uh, she's a freshman at Pacific Lutheran University and was visiting a couple local churches with some of her friends. And she went to one uh, a local church and loved the music. The people were friendly. And she went another Sunday, and something curious happened. It was about time for elections in the state of Washington. The pastor got up, and he had a little booklet. And he said, you know, some of you aren't really, um, you know, informed uh, in God's word and uh, some of you, you know, need some uh, some encouragement and guidance. Uh, if you're uncertain about which candidates to vote for and how to vote on the measures uh, on the ballot, uh, we've provided a, a booklet uh, to direct your votes on Tuesday. Well, and if you have any questions, meet in a certain room, and a certain person will be there to go through the go through the ballot with you. And my honestly, my daughter was a little troubled by that. You mean, so I don't get to think about this and talk about it? You're just going to show me that, that the way you plan to vote is going to be a measure of, of my faith and my walk with God? That is not how we as a church have chosen to live together and move together in the face of difficult issues. We've chosen simply to stand on God's word together to meet heart to heart and discuss these issues together. We haven't always done it well, but we have some guidelines from Scripture. We need to face those issues together, and secondly, we need to find common ground together. Now notice, the early church, even though they made a decision for one side instead of the other, still considered the stumbling blocks for others. Right? Those difficult issues that others would continue to struggle with. Right? For the, for the early church, things like food sacrifice to pagan idols would be a major stumbling block 
that would set up a barrier between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians for whom those were religious taboos. And so even Paul, the champion of grace through faith, is the one who also championed right, the call to consider stumbling blocks and adjust for the sake of others. This is how he put it when it came to food sacrifice to idols. Make up your mind, this is Romans chapter 14, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. It's better not to eat or drink or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. Now, in our day, a very simple illustration of this could be the practice of, of using wine in communion. That's how I grew up. I know some of you fondly miss that. <laughs> um, but we know how addiction has had such a, a painful and terrible impact in the lives of some individuals and in the lives of their family and now, say, their adult children. And alcohol is simply a, a barrier, a stumbling block. And they feel it not only for themselves, but maybe for their children. And so when we first united and and organized as a church, we decided, you know what? When it comes to communion, we are simply not going to let alcohol be a stumbling block or a barrier. And we came to believe that that God was not limited (laughs) by the practice of using grape juice instead of wine. It's simply bending, adjusting putting the love and needs of another ahead of custom or practice. So consider the stumbling blocks. And finally, find your unity in the law of love. What is required for the sake of unity? Time and again, Jesus and and his followers that we see it time and again in the letters of Paul call us to the law of love. We are free But the law of love is greater even than our freedom. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 10. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And again, it doesn't mean we don't speak our mind and speak our heart. It's vile that we do, but how? This is how Peter put it in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 3. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do it with gentleness and respect. These are powerful guidelines for us today. And finally, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Even as we address difficult issues of conflict, whatever they may be in our families, in our friendships, in our workplaces, in the church, the law of love is to guide us. And I'll close with a a compelling story from the church in which I served in Beaverton. St. Matthew Lutheran Church, when it first uh, 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 founded, uh, met in a funeral home in Beaverton. And because it was a very staid, traditional Lutheran church, that seemed a very suitable place for them to meet. 
Um, as, as my pastor growing up used to say, there is hope for Lutherans because Scripture says the dead in Christ shall rise first. Well, they grew from a small group of, of 20 or so to a group of about 100 adults and children. And it was just then, young in their life, they had the opportunity to purchase the 10 acres on which they now, you know, have their church building. 10 acres. It was a huge, a huge undertaking. A, I mean, a God-sized risk and opportunity. And there were two sides on this issue, right? The pastor and council and a portion of the congregation on one side said, how can we pass this up? This is our chance I mean, this could be home, our mission base for, for generations to come. And the other side said, why would we take this kind of a financial risk when we're so young, when we're so small, when it could burden us and buckle us for years to come? Well, they had an Acts 15 meeting <laughs> to consider the issue. Both sides were given an opportunity to present their cases. Members of the congregation were given an opportunity to respond and voice their support for one position or the other. And then the vote was taken, 51 to 48. Yikes. A man named Carl Frowdy shared this story with me. He was in the room that day. In his 80s, he was still a faithful member of St. Matthew Lutheran Church. And he wanted to purchase the property. But he said he and the pastor and the council and everyone else knew that if those who opposed the purchase decided to walk that day, not only would they not be able to purchase the property, they wouldn't be able to make a budget. They'd have to maybe close their doors. It was just at that moment the leader of the movement not to buy stood up and in a very clear voice said, I've had a chance to speak my mind. You know my heart on this issue. And I've had a chance to listen to you, and I've had a chance to hear your heart on this issue. The vote was close, but the vote has been taken. It's time for us to unite again, to become a church. This is our home. We launch our mission from here. Carl said, you know, we were a bunch of Norwegians and Swedes, but there wasn't a dry eye in the house. That's the power. That's the power of coming heart to heart, right? In the spirit of Christ, in the grace of God for the greater good. Through Jesus, we can be one in the spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you said they will know that we are your disciples by our love for one another. And so I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would Enable us to live the way of Jesus. To unite for the sake of his calling and his cause. To love one another. To reconcile and restore our relationships whenever needed. So that together we can serve you faithfully today and always.